Hello, I'm Kyle Willoughby. Joining me is Claire White. Hi. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. We're here to discuss new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. And today we are talking about Frankenstein. Now, Claire, who, what, where, when, why is, is Frankenstein? Frankenstein? I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to say all of that in one sentence. <laughs> Frankenstein is the famous story of a doctor that creates and gives a being of his creation life, then must live with the consequences of it. I think that answers all of your questions. Pretty much. It was written by Mary Shelley during a long, cold summer in 1815 and published two years later. It is generally considered to be the first work of science fiction. It has spawned countless adaptations and spinoffs, including the famous 1931 movie starring Boris Karloff. Also... On an exciting note, more exciting than Frankenstein. Uh, let's not sell it that hard. <laughs> this month kicks off the new DSRA format where we release our episodes in thematic pairings to trace themes between older and newer nerd topics. Yes, I'm very excited about this. And we mentioned it last episode, too. Now, for this pair, we're looking at the perils of creating life with the latest technology by pairing Frankenstein with... Jurassic Park. So I can't wait to talk about Jurassic Park. <laughs> Me too. And what better way to ring in this new change than with some of our favorite nerd podcasters, Jen and Meg from the Indoors Women. Yes, Jen and Meg from the Indoors Women were kind enough to join us on our discussion of Frankenstein. So let's take it away. We are so excited to have the Indoors Women on the podcast. Uh, Meg, Jen, tell us about yourselves and your podcast. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Oh, we are so happy to have you. Yes, we are. Thank you both so much for coming on. We're very excited. Well, we're big fans, and I feel like our podcasts are kindred spirits. We're also a pop culture podcast. So we chat about books, movies, TV shows, comic books, fandom, fan culture, geekdom, all sorts of stuff. We play silly games like Sex, Mary Kill, like which of the adventures would we want to be in a relationship with, that type of silly thing. We'll be playing a game with you today, too, and also we're having drinks. Yes. Jen, anything I missed? <laughs> we're a corrupting influence because they don't usually drink over here at DSRA. Yeah, and we're, we're bringing the drinks. <laughs> if we sound better, we blame them. <laughs> I know. We are normally a dry podcast, not because we choose to be, uh, but because be. we have a tyrannical producer who insists upon it. But we, you know, because you guys are coming on, we made sure that this is going to happen. Yeah. We get to drink for this And podcast. we get to play games. And we get to play a game for once in our life. James, yeah. pay attention. <laughs> I think he prefers to be called Overlord. It's <laughs> <laughs> like what I heard. Yeah, maybe that's his, that's his uh, preferential pronoun, I guess. But uh. You're allowed to say it, but we're not. Yes. <laughs> but we're, Meg and Jen are bringing some aspects of their podcast to our podcast, and yes. we're really excited to infuse the two. Yes. So I guess we'll start off with, uh, this is an indoors women thing. What are we drinking? It's Thursday Woo. night. Some people don't have work tomorrow. <laughs> I think that's just you. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> um, um, Meg, what are you drinking right now? Well, as a fellow person who doesn't have work tomorrow, cheers. <laughs> cheers, cheers. I'm drinking a gin and tonic, and I made it as hipstery as possible with elderflower tonic and something called sea gin. So it has seaweed in addition to its usual botanicals. Foraged seaweed, mind you. So that sounded <laughs> oh, wow. pretty fancy Forage. to me. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Is it a better gin and tonic? It's pretty good. I mean, I'm not much of an aficionado, but it's good. <laughs> I wonder how you get the job of foraging seaweed, but... That's another podcast. Someone's got to do it, yeah. It's <laughs> a good question. Jen, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a weird beer that I picked out in a pick six, and I just kind of looked at it, and it had a very beautiful label, and it's a sour rosé, and I was like, I like those things, and so I picked it up. It's from Crooked Stave Brewery, and it's a delightful red color in my Crimson Peak glass. Oh, nice. Because gothic. Oh, yeah, very true. with our theme for today, yes. and it's pretty good. It tastes like a sour rosé beer would. That, that sounds exists. delicious. Apparently. That exists. <laughs> it's like the two things we both love. I know. Rosé and I sour beer. beer. And you love rosé. 
It's a perfect exactly. marriage of the it's two, delicious. Claire. Uh, Claire, I don't actually know what we're drinking because I didn't make this, uh, <laughs> I, but you do. What, I what kind am of I know what we're drinking. It's like a, a hipster take on a Manhattan, a fancy take. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, it is rye so it's Brooklyn. Yes. yes, cause well, we're in Queens, but you know, yeah. it's okay, very close. Very. It's a borough. <laughs> yeah. But not as cool borough. Um, it is rye whiskey with sherry and fancy bitters. Yeah. With like an orange peel in it. Yeah. We we did Ooh. James did make this for us. We have to give him credit. Yeah. So even though we are drinking, he He did. He made helped it facilitate it. He yeah. made the drink. It's true. <laughs> but it, it's very delicious. And we're very excited to be drinking. I Cheers. Know. Cheers. <laughs> so he's overlord and sometimes bartender. Only when he's trying to show off his cocktail skills. He's a And then we're also gonna start off with a game because we get so jealous of the games the indoors women play. And it's true about their podcast. You always wanna chime in and like give your (laughs) ideas and I feel like we partly facilitated this so we could chime in with them. This is true. Um so guys, what (laughs) game are we playing? We're gonna play TV Tropes Roulette. So we go to TVTropes.org and hit the random trope button. And when you find one that you identify with and can talk about, then we identify with it and talk about it. And give examples that we think of off the top of our heads. The yes. lucky thing about TVTropes.com or .org, too, is that they, they will give you some examples, too. Yes. Yeah, so you could totally cheat if you are <laughs> totally stumped. That's I usually just click through until I find one that means something to me. Yeah, yeah. All right, who wants to go first? I can go first. Okay, I have one. It's called Read the Fine Print. And it's basically before signing or agreeing to something, you should really read through the contract, which is a very common trope. And I immediately thought of the Santa Claus, because (laughs) as soon as he puts on the suit, he's obligated to become Santa. And it's written in really tiny print around the card. Yeah, little Bernard's got to read through it with a magnifying glass. Yeah, he's like, oh, you didn't see this? Yeah, and also... It reminds me of Doctor Strange with the, you've got to put the warnings at the beginnings of the spells <laughs> rather than the end. <laughs> yes, I have one that I, I like, actually, and that pertains to my favorite thing in the world. And uh, it's the insect queen trope. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, when, you know, if there's any, if there's a kind of alien or maybe some sort of weaponized insect or something, there's always some sort of powerful queen or or, or like they live in this hive kind of caste system, um, and that goes back to my favorite movie in the world, Aliens, where there is a mm-hmm, uh, nice. alien queen. Starship Troopers also comes to mind, or oh, definitely. the video game Starcraft with Sarah Kerrigan, who was once a human woman who becomes queen of the Zerg. Also, Ender's Game popped into my mind. Oh yeah, definitely. They've definitely got that whole hive mind thing happening. Or yeah. uh, Independence Day as well, if you kill the oh. main mothership, then all the other like sort of insectoid aliens die. Yeah, that's true. So I've got one. It's called Modesty Bedsheet. I'm sure we can all think of a million examples <laughs> yes. of this. This is also, <laughs> also known as the L-shaped blanket because it conveniently censors the women's breasts and also the men's nether region, but, you know, <laughs> leaves his abs exposed. So that's the example of the modesty bed sheet. Sometimes you get a, a, an ass cheek or two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's hard to keep it perfectly placed, you know. <laughs> I'd say there's probably a million examples of this in True Blood. Oh, oh yeah, definitely. definitely. Yeah, yeah. I feel like in every kind of um, CW TV show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I found one which slightly pertains to my segment tonight. It's Constellations. Oh. Um, I guess I think of Muppet Treasure Island as my first thing when um, (laughs) (laughs) Jim and uh, Tim Curry are, like, looking at the stars. Yeah. That's my first thought. (laughs) But I feel like most, a lot of adventure stories, like, they're following the stars. Yeah, well, Peter Pan, you know, that's how they get to Neverland. Stardust. Yep. Is by following that... You know, first star on the right or whatever. All right. So I'm going to be doing the history for this segment. Yeah, wait. What are we even talking about, Claire? We haven't even said what we're talking oh, about. Oh, yeah. We'll do that podcast. in our intro. 
Um, Why did we bring Megan Jen on to our podcast? To, to make it better. To make it better, but also to discuss uh, one of the most enduring uh, works of science fiction slash fantasy slash horror right. fiction. Like horror. Yeah. One of the most influential works in the genre. Also, what my segment pertains to, pertain, pertains, yes, pertains to, um, is that it is uh, given credit for basically being the first work of sci-fi starting yeah. off the genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and what is it, though? What is what? It's sci-fi. Frankenstein. It's Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> what is science fiction? <laughs> oh, is, yeah, that's a different podcast. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> um, anyway, so what I want to talk about is uh, why Frankenstein is the first work of sci-fi um, and why uh, other earlier works maybe could be science fiction, but aren't. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Mary Shelley, how the, you know, the, I think, I think the story of how Frankenstein is written is, is fairly well known, uh, but it's so interesting, it's hard not to, you know, re-relate. But I also want to add something interesting that I read about, like, why this book was written that was kind of outside of the hands of Mary Shelley in a way that I, I thought was kind of cool. Um, and, and Megan Jen... Uh, you guys are gonna talk about some notable favorite adaptations of the novel and and some Frankenstein tropes and stuff. We love tropes. We're all about the tropes. <laughs> yeah, Frankenstein is so iconic that it just sort of pervades pop culture in a lot of ways. So we'll be talking about that and, as you said, adaptations of the novel. I felt like I knew the story of Frankenstein, and then I read the book, and I was like guess I didn't. Yeah. The story that you absorb through the cultural zeitgeist is really not the story that Shelley wrote. So I am very interested to talk about this. Yeah, me too. So right. Claire, take it away. I'll take it away. So like I mentioned earlier, the common consensus is that Frankenstein is the first science fiction novel. And I want to use this little bit of time that I've given myself to explain, prove, define why that is. Now, the first thing we have to do, and this is not the first time we've done it on our podcast, is attempt to define what science fiction is. I hope you use the scientific method to define it. Sure didn't. (laughs) Um, I pulled three definitions from sources I highly respect because there's a lot of back and forth on what exactly it is and, you know, this is fantasy, this is sci-fi, this is horror. Yeah. So I'm going to kind of use these three examples somewhere in between the three that's science fiction. The first one is fiction dealing principally with the impact of actual or imagined science on individuals or having a scientific factor as an essential orienting component. That is from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. The next one. Science fiction depicts the future, whether in a stylized or realistic manner. Now that is from Jeff and Ann Vandermeer. Uh, One is a notable science fiction author. The other is a notable science fiction editor. Uh, The two of them are a husband and wife team that put together the anthology, The Big Book of Science Fiction, which I highly, highly recommend. And I would qualify them as experts in the genre. Yeah, we are very big fans of Ann and Jeff Vandermeer. We did an episode on The Big Book of Science Fiction. Jeff, Jeff Vandermeer also wrote Annihilation, which was made into a movie about a year ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we did yes, I love the Southern Reach trilogies. So yeah, oh, it's so good, yeah. And then my last definition is, the biggest difference in world building for science fiction and fantasy is that science fiction takes what we have and tries to extrapolate what's plausible, while fantasy works backwards. Take the something that's impossible, make it feel plausible. And that is from Brandon Sanderson, who is one of my favorite authors, and he is a notable fantasy and science fiction writer. Yeah, also a good authority on the... Yeah, he writes it, he knows. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So let's start at the beginning, and I'm going to work forward to Mary Shelley and Frankenstein. So men have been dreaming of monsters and going to other worlds for pretty much as long as we have written record of them. In the second century, ancient Greek writer Lucian told a story where his heroes are carried by a whirlwind to the moon and find the sun and the moon are at war. And also, there are men riding three-headed vultures and huge fleas. <laughs> That's one of my favorite stories of like, or like the first like space adventure. It's like <laughs> a bunch of Greeks seeming seemingly like drunk or something. What do you think's on the moon? <laughs> Vultures and fleas. Giant fleas, I bet. Some crazy stuff. Cheese? Cheese? (laughs) No, fleas. (laughs) 
And that was later conflated. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The 10th century Japanese tale called The Bamboo Cutter and The Moon Child is about a bamboo cutter who finds a beautiful girl in a bamboo plant, and it turns out she's from the moon and eventually has to go back there. 1001 Nights has multiple examples of what could be quote-unquote science fixtures, one being the adventures of Belukia, which tells of Belukia's journey across the cosmos to different worlds in search of immortality. So, I posit that if these stories were written today, they would probably be classified as science fiction. But that's because these writers would have a better idea of how to actually travel to the moon. They would know that there's no fleas, um, vultures, or cheese yeah. on the moon. <laughs> and they would also know more about how to get to another world. But today, most experts consider these fantasy stories, since the events that happen in them are miraculous, not backed up by any science or technological explanation. So, why did stories stop being fantasy and start being sinus fiction? Science, science, yeah. Science fiction. You yes. said sinus fiction. It's the same thing. <laughs> okay. Her, her sinuses are fictional. Yes. <laughs> Mine are very real and painful right now. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> So I'm going to very much skim the surface on some big things that happened in Western civilization. Um, these movements are the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, uh, Age of Reason, Age. Age of Reason, and the Industrial Evolution. Now these Revolution. happened. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Claire, you need a cup of coffee. I'm drinking this cocktail. <laughs> That's what happens when drinking drink. happens. Yeah, no, a bunch of bunch of drinking noobs trying to record. I know. Okay. So, why did these stories stop being fantasy and start being science fiction? Well, some very big movements happened in human history, and I'm just going to skim the surface of them and lump them all together like we do. Uh, there's the Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, and the Industrial Evolution. And they all happen... Revolution. Industrial revolution. Revol revolution. <laughs> you know, I wrote down evolution. That's the problem. <laughs> um, and they all happened around the same time. And eventually did give birth to science fiction. So what does the Enlightenment have to do with science fiction? Um, historically, humans were coming out of the Dark and Middle Ages, where questioning the status quo was actively discouraged, um, therefore leading to very little technological development, very little scientific advancement. And suddenly humanity was making these huge technological strides that they had never seen before because they were questioning the status quo. Um, some examples. Galileo built a telescope and discovered that the Earth revolved around the sun. Um, yeah. well, big to do. Copernicus had also theorized that, like, right before him. Exactly. Building on top of each yeah. other. Yeah, yeah. Multiple items were invented that could claim to have changed the world, uh, some being the steam engine, combustion engine, and electrical telegraph. Also, culturally, ideas about fellow men were changing. The Declaration of Independence and the French Declaration of the Rights of Man were written. And Western men started to see each other differently. Um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was a new thing. Yeah. That we were entitled to that. Or men, sorry. Men were entitled to yes. that. Yes, yes, we were. <laughs> no, we. <laughs> well, it's funny because... Unfortunately. Mary Shelley had, and uh, Mary Shelley's family had a lot to say about that, actually, which I'm excited to get into. Especially, you know, that men were entitled to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. She was pretty interesting. Well, not quite to Mary Shelley yet, but while these movements were happening, there were other stories written that, again, towed the line of science fiction. Margaret Cavendish wrote The Blazing World, where a maiden that had been captured by pirates escapes by drifting into another world that is attached to the North Pole. Johannes Klepper wrote the, uh, you pronounce this correctly. Oh, the, uh, uh, Kepler? Yeah. The Som Somnium. Somnium. Yeah, yeah. I always look at it and think it's pronounced differently. Where uh, Kepler uses uh, Kep Kepler. Kepler uses yeah. a dream his author has to describe what the heavens would look like from the vantage point of the moon. And he was a scientist himself. Exactly. But again, these stories, they tend to be found in very loose, like the, the technology in them isn't really there. Um, they're grappling with new scientific discoveries, which is what the Merriam-Webster Dictionary says defines science fiction. But they're really more fantasy adventure stories uh, about what humans might find in space or another world rather than how these discoveries could actually happen. That yeah. The science isn't in there. Yeah. Now this leads me to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was published in 1818. The main character is Dr. Frankenstein, and um, he uses science, not magic or unexplained reasoning, to bring his creation to life. 
Um, Mary Shelley was apparently fascinated by the use of electricity to animate limbs. The scientist Luigi Galvani had performed experiments on dead frogs where he found that the electric currents stimulated their legs. This led him to believe that humans created their own type of electricity. And though his theories were disproved, the idea that the dead could be brought back to life using electricity had been released into the zeitgeist of the time. Also, she had probably heard of Johann Conrad Dippel, a figure rumored to be a grave robber that experimented on corpses and was trying to bring back life by injecting it with a concoction of blood and bone, usually made from animal and human corpses. Yeah, which is pretty crazy. And back then, um, if you if you were a biologist or you wanted to be a uh, study anatomy, like Victor Frankenstein in the book is a an anatomist, mm -hmm. uh, you had to, you could only um, dissect and inspect the bodies of criminals, cr murdered criminals. You couldn't, that's it. So there was like a real shortage of bodies. That's why they're all, the grave robbing <laughs> was a thing. It's like, well, we have all these, and science, a lot of scientists were amateurs back then. These amateur scientists were trying to, you know, right. just, just learn more about the human body. So they paid people to rob graves. <laughs> but because Mary Shelley is the first example of an author who based the fantastic elements in her story on the signs of her days. Based on the definitions that I related earlier, I would agree that Frankenstein is the first piece of science fiction where she's actually using the technology around her in her story. And you, even though the science isn't real, you can see that science was used to create this being in Frankenstein. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. I mean, um, Megan, Jen, what do you guys think? Yeah, you definitely use the science of the time and the possibilities and read the studies and and then extrapolate from there. And so she worked with what she had. She didn't necessarily know that people were going to be disproven. So she was like, maybe electricity can reanimate bodies, though we consider that to be sort of a magic trope today. Victor Frankenstein in the book itself talks about how he rejects the supernatural. At first, he was talking about studying alchemy until his professors told him, no, you're crazy, don't do that. So even within the book, we see this sort of evolution towards a more sci-fi mentality using the technology of the time and galvanism, as you mentioned. And as you were just alluding to, it's also kind of one of the themes like scientific responsibility. It's sort of a cautionary tale about what it's like to pursue knowledge without any sort of practical consideration for the outcome. And there's a lot of themes of mother nature and father science. His sister Elizabeth is very feminine and very natural, whereas the pursuit of science seems very masculine in the book. Well, and also we see things like Christian values creeping up because it's like, okay, it would be really nice to reanimate our dead relatives whom we loved, but that's wrong. That's against God's law, against nature's law. And so you don't necessarily want to put a positive message in there that, hey, this worked out fine and everyone was fine and happy. So usually reanimating the dead has negative consequences in fiction. No, that's that's definitely true, too. But it's funny you should mention uh, like Christian values and their part in the book, because they I had I had researched Mary Shelley before I'd read Frankenstein. And I was actually kind of surprised by how much um, kind of Christian values were put in the book based on what I found out about Shelley and how she grew up. Why don't you tell us about it, Kyle? I, uh, I will. <laughs> it's, <laughs> she is fascinating. And she needs... What if you just said no? no yeah. Nope. You know what? Not today. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> It'd be a different podcast. Come back next week. We'll, uh, maybe... Just throws his research over his shoulder <laughs> yeah. and sleeps. It's my old laptop. <laughs> <laughs> no, I play Civ on there. Um, so... She's Mary Shelley's pretty interesting, and she deserves a, a biopic. And I know they did one uh, recent, semi recently with Ellie Fanning, um, but I, I heard it was pretty bad, and, and they dramatized a lot of stuff they didn't need to. Her life was a was a drama all its own. It was like a soap opera. Um, so first things first, Mary Shelley was the daughter of William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecroft, um, both of whom were radically liberal for their day, and even pretty freaking liberal for our day too. Really? Yeah. Mary Wollstonecraft was a leading feminist and is considered one of the founding feminist philosophers or the founding feminist philosophers. This is Mary Shelley's mother. Um, she wrote a book called A Vindication of the Rights of Women in 1792. 
which among other things argued that women were equal to men and that the main thing keeping women subservient to men was their lack of education. Which I thought was pretty cool. Like, she comes from a, a, a pretty radical family. Um, I like that. Yeah, it's, it's really <laughs> neat. And her father uh, was also really radical. He was an abolitionist. He didn't believe in marriage. And Mary's mother, uh, Mary Wollstonecroft, also didn't believe in marriage. So they weren't married. Um, they did eventually get married, uh, but he was an anarchist. He didn't believe in marriage. He was, uh, also a, a atheist and Mary Wollstonecroft also was, you know, an atheist or, or at least it, it, it's thought that she was an atheist as well. So she comes from these two really, really radical people. Mary Wollstonecroft too, Mary Shelley's mother had had a child out of wedlock with someone else and then, um, you know, and then met Mary's father, William Godwin. And William Godwin, you know, just raised that, uh, that child kind of like it was, it was his own daughter. Um, wow. and, 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 you know, he wasn't, at least it, it, seemingly, he wasn't that upset by it. Because he also was like, yeah, women shouldn't have to get married. You should be able to allow, allowed to have kids after, after, or out of wedlock. Which when you learn about that, then you're like, yeah, but there is also this, this, like, fear of God thing in Frankenstein. It's a little funny. Right. That also could have been writing for the audience, too, you know? Like, mm-hmm. who's going to be reading this of this right. time? But, it, like, I feel like Christianity was so prevalent in the culture at the time yeah. that I think it would be hard not to include it or not to be influ- influenced by it in yeah. some way. This is that is very true. And not to spoil what I think you might talk about later, there's some question as to what percent of this book was written by Mary Shelley and what percent was written by Percy Shelley. So maybe some of that injection of Christianity might have been one of his many additions to her original work. Well, Percy Shelley was also an anarchist and an atheist. That's what makes it Ah. even more confusing. (laughs) That is even more questions. (laughs) So with with these really radical liberal parents, you'd think that Mary Shelley would have one of those you know, European, quote, childhoods where she could smoke and drink underage and she had the cool parents. Uh, but her, her childhood actually wasn't all sunshine and roses. Um, her mother died 11 days after giving birth to her, leaving her to be raised just by her father. And that's something that seems to have had an effect on Mary Shelley for a long time. Like, she always sort of blamed herself for her mother's death, even though, you know, she was a baby. She doesn't remember it at all. Now, there's a lot to talk go into with Shelley's life. I just want to fast forward and hit some, some big moments. I'm going to fast forward to 1814. Uh, a man named Percy Shelley has been hanging around Mary Shelley's house because Percy Shelley was a huge fanboy of Mary's father, Godwin, William Godwin. And Percy also seemed to have developed a kind of crush on Mary. And he was a bit older. He was six years older. Uh, Mary was 16 at this time. So Mary and Percy, they become close friends, and they often meet up at Mary's mother's grave. So that's like their like secret like meeting you place. Do. Yeah, it's it all it all it's like her life in itself is kind of like the story of the first goth kid. <laughs> yeah, gothic <laughs> AF. She's 16. She's meeting up with her older boyfriend behind her father's back at her mother's grave, where they read and talk. And uh, they probably do some other activities because one thing leads to another. And at 17, (laughs) Mary's pregnant by Percy Shelley. Uh. And it's funny, William Godwin was this anarchist, didn't believe in marriage, you know, very like free love. But when it came to his daughter, he was not happy. He was like, wait a minute, what? (laughs) (laughs) Especially this this kid who had been like a disciple of his, who was just a huge fanboy of his coming over, hanging out knocks up his daughter. I'd be pissed too. Yeah. I get it. William Godwin was not older. happy. Mm-hmm. Well, wasn't Percy Shelley also married to another woman yes. when he first met? Yes, he was. Percy Shelley was already married when he started meeting up with Mary Shelley at uh at her mother's grave he and knocked her up. Sounds like bad news, Kyle. Percy Shelley was bad <laughs> news. I mean, but the funny thing is per- when you read the story of of this whole this whole thing like Mary Shelley's life Percy Shelley's bad news, but he looks better because there's another character in Mary Shelley's life, and his name is Lord Byron, and he is worse news, just way, way worse. Oh, yeah, don't trust that guy. (laughs) Just no, 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 no. So Percy comes out, like, seeming a little better, just comparatively. Oh, no. Well, if you compare him to Lord Byron, like, 
Yeah, yeah. it's pretty good. Yeah, that Lord Byron <laughs> was not a good dude. Um, so no. Percy convinces Mary and Mary's stepsister, Claire. So Mary's father had remarried. So, uh, Mary had a stepsister named Claire. Even though he didn't believe in Mary. Who was even younger than, than Mary Shelley was. She was 14 to run away with him. And he and they, starts looking better because of Lord Byron. <laughs> they, and they, yeah, they both agreed to it. And so the three of them abscond off in the night you know, in a carriage, um, with this like kind of idea of at least in, in, in some academic writings with this idea of like free love and, you know, kind of anything goes. Uh, so I want to fast forward two years. Uh, so Mary had her first child and that child tragically died, uh, very, very young. Um, so I want to fast forward to the summer of 1816. And this is when the writing of Frankenstein actually took place. Um, Mary and Percy are invited to Geneva, Switz- or Geneva Lake, Switzerland, to spend the summer with the famous poet Lord Byron and Lord Byron's newest lover, Claire Claremont, who was Mary's, uh, Mary's stepsister. And along, there was a physician there, John Polidori, and this is theorized mostly to bring laudanum and opiates. So they're... <laughs> They're renting. It's really extreme. They're renting this house in on a lake in Switzerland in the summer, and it's a bunch of free love, free swinging, <laughs> young people, and and opiates and laudanum. So uh, it sounds like that time is Burning Man. Yeah, it's like, it sounds like. <laughs> and it's funny because there was an attraction in, at Geneva Lake where people who uh, who were visiting the town or who were in Switzerland would go to Geneva Lake and would bring their telescopes to look across it to try and catch a glimpse of the depravity going on <laughs> at the Byron house. So just like Burning Man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 pretty crazy. But that summer proved to be a really nasty one. There were lots of there's lots of rains, there's lots of storms, there's even frost in June. Um, and the bad weather which forced the group inside often left them tired and bored. And they passed a lot of time by uh, telling and reading old German ghost stories and poems. And this led Byron to the idea that they would each come up with their own ghost story to tell the others, which no one really took serious but Mary. And Mary was having trouble coming up with the story, but it really possessed her, and she was trying to think of something cool. Part of that is, people think, is that, uh, you know, she's with Lord Byron, who's this already this famous poet. Her husband, Percy Shelley, I didn't mention this before, but he's also a poet trying to trying to, you know, write and make it as a poet like Byron did, and they're good buddies. Um, and there's this idea that, like, she wanted to show them that, hey, I can write too, and, like, I have talent, you know, I'm, I'm really going to put my mind to this. And it wasn't until she was apparently listening in on a conversation that Byron and Percy were having that was about life that she started thinking about the idea of reanimating a corpse. And she then later had a nightmare that would provide the last bit of motivation for her to write Frankenstein. And this is from her journal, this next quote. It's, quote, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the, the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. So that was the, she had a nightmare about a body coming back to life. And that's kind of what inspired her to write this book. Influenced by maybe the science of the day? Pro, I'm sure influenced by the science of the mm-hmm. day. Because prior to 1816, Mary and Percy, and for a bit, Claire Claremont, were kind of riding all around um, uh, Switzerland, southern Germany, Italy. Uh, they were they were going a lot of places and they were seeing a lot of things. So I'm, I'm sure that she absorbed that information and... Um, and then, you know, it was a dark and spooky night on this lake house in Geneva, and she had a, a scary dream. Now, I want to take a little detour uh, away from this Mary Shelley Geneva lake house, um, and actually to a, the year before that they all met up there. So the year prior to them going to Byron's Swiss vacation home for their infamous salon. Um, and I want to talk about something very far away, uh, a little island in Indonesia in the South Pacific, and a very large vo- a volcano there called Mount Tambora. So th- I, this sounds kind of weird, but this is all connected back to h- how Frankenstein was written, which I thought was fascinating. 
On April 10th in 1815, Mount Tambora in Indonesia exploded in the largest volcanic eruption in recorded history. It measured as a 7 on the Richter scale, which only goes to an 8. It was 100 times larger than Mount St. Helens, and it was 1,000 times larger than that recent eruption in Iceland that downed all those planes. What was that eight years ago? Eight years ago? Was that what? Yeah. It, that I don't volcan- know that Iceland volcano? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so it was 1,000 times mm-hmm. larger than that. Um, the eruption killed at least 88,000 people almost immediately, and it poured 36 cubic miles of hot rock and ash into the sky. The ash cloud climbed all the way into the stratosphere and reached heights of 10 miles, which is higher than commercial aviation. So this, Whoa. Yeah, so it was a, just a big freaking volcano exploded. What does this have to do with Mary Shelley and Frankenstein? <laughs> So this seemingly completely unrelated event would prove to be a facet of the story of Frankenstein's writing. Because you see, the summer of 1860, it wasn't just nasty in Geneva, keeping Byron and and Percy and Mary and Claire all bundled up inside. It was nasty everywhere. Um, It was nasty all over the Northern Hemisphere. The summer on average, that average of the summer of 1816, was half a degree Celsius colder than normal, and it was downright wacky. In some places in, in June in Switzerland... Streams froze, and central Germany was hit by a freak snowstorm in June. Did they know why? Was They had no idea why. Right. Whole harvests were ruined by summer frosts, and wind and rain and thunderstorms were common. People thought it was a sign of the end times, that God was going to cleanse the world of sin. And also, it forced a group of five young writers and thinkers inside to write ghost stories for entertainment, instead of swimming around and partying in a lake. For people to see. <laughs> and I, I feel like Especially when we frame Frankenstein in, as the first science fiction book and that, you know, it was using science to try and explain something that, that, didn't, you, know, that you can't do or you, to reanimate corpses. The idea that all around Europe people thought that God was, was uh, you know, punishing them for their sins because this summer was so cold and so blighted really had this scientific explanation, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away. <laughs> Mary Shelley just came up with a different one. Yeah, well, I don't know. I thought it was. I thought that was that was pretty interesting. So I, I know I've been gabbing for a while, uh, but I, I do want to talk a little bit more about Mary Shelley, how she was kind of stalked by death, and that Frankenstein. It, it, when you when you read more about her life, and then you read Frankenstein, you're like, yeah, this this woman did write this book. She also she was 19 when she wrote it. She was very much still the first goth teenager ever. <laughs> <laughs> You know, just trying to try and do a, you know, write about this darkness. And she was surrounded by darkness. Her first child, William, died a crib death. So her second child, Clara, also died of a, of a fever very young. I think she was before she was a year old. She had four children. Of those four, only one lived to adulthood. Also, Lord Byron died, you know, not too, not too much longer after, uh, after Frankenstein was published. And he died he in 1824. became her lover, right? Because you, uh, you didn't mention that earlier. What, he, what exactly he meant to you? You just said he was bad news. He was bad news. So it's unclear if Byron and, and Mary Shelley did have an affair. It's likely because everyone in that house was sleeping with each other. It, they're pretty sure that Percy, mm-hmm. Mary's husband, impregnated Claire Claremont, had a baby with her, um, who then he said claimed was Byron's. You know, there's a, like, there's a lot of gossip we could go into. <laughs> Byron you know, decided that Claire was unfit to raise the child that he didn't think even think was his. So he took the child away from her, put that child in a convent. The child died as a kid. Byron never, you know, went to see her or anything. Um, Percy also, Percy, Percy Shelley died trying to get to Byron's place for another party. He drowned in 1822. So it's Mary's husband also drowned. That's very pathetic death. Yeah. <laughs> trying to get to a party yeah. and drowned along the way. Trying to <laughs> trying to sail to Byron's house to party uh, and he drowned along the way. <laughs> Just uh, everywhere Mary turned people were dying. She had a, another stepsister um, named Fanny who was the the daughter of her her mother's out of out of wedlock child daughter who committed suicide a little bit before Frankenstein was was released and published. Everywhere Mary Shelley turned, like, the people that she cared about were, oh, were dying young deaths. So she is Victor Frankenstein. She kind of is. But a lot of this happened after the book was, was published. She really is kind of the... I, I, 
I'm having a hard time trying to say this the right way, but when you read Frankenstein, it really does feel like a fantastical um, reflection of what her life was. It's really sad, and everyone around her is dying. Right. Yeah, and she lived a gothic life, and so she wrote a gothic novel. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that's that's about what I have for, for Mary Shelley. I thought it was... Really... pretty fascinating mm-hmm. she she deserves a, a good movie that does and, and it doesn't need to be dramatized because the, the story itself is is so unreal anyway that volcano deserves a movie too mount tambora <laughs> yeah i want to learn more about the volcano <laughs> yeah well it, that volcano caused terrible cold snowy summers in europe for six years and this is right after I the napoleonic it. wars so a lot of people were dying too during this time because there were there were the wars had just ended, but now all the crops were failing because the summers were so cold. Oh wow! Yeah, heavy stuff. Happy October, people. <laughs> <laughs> Dark, dreary death. Yes, yes. So, Jen and Meg, uh, do you guys want to talk a little bit about some Frankenstein monster tropes and some fun, notable adaptations of Frankenstein? No, we want to talk about more death. No. All right, we'll keep going then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, some of these will probably include death. Well, I just wanted to talk just a little bit about the structure of the novel itself before we move on to more tropey things. I guess we kind of stretch the meaning of trope to mean kind of any kind of recurring theme or construction in any kind of media. And a lot of the time trope is used as a bad thing. We just see it as a recurring thing. And one of the things I observed about the novel... so. If people haven't read it, it has an epistolary frame, so it's written as if it's a letter uh, home, and it's written not exactly from Dr. Frankenstein's point of view, but like he is telling the story to someone, and that person is writing home in a letter. And I am wondering what you guys thought of that, because in one way, epistolary frames are kind of supposed to lend realism like, this could have really happened because it's just simply a letter home that this person is relaying. But I think it made it seem less realistic just because the amount of detail that was in there and, like, the long speeches that Dr. Frankenstein and the monster give. I'm like, really? He would know all of that? <laughs> Verbatim. Verbatim. <laughs> like, word for word, incredibly detailed, you know, like, 300-page letters. I'm just wondering what yeah. you guys thought of that. <laughs> It's like a Russian nesting doll of letters because it has the character of Robert Walton, who unsurprisingly does not show up in very many adaptations because the letter format is a bit cumbersome. (laughs) He is relating Victor Frankenstein's story to his sister through letters. Mm -hmm. And also when he's talking to Frankenstein, Frankenstein relates the creature's story that was told to him. So it's quite convoluted, and it's not that surprising that later adaptations got rid of this. They just get rid opinion. of all that. I was like, oh, what is this? What's happening with this? I I like the frame narrative. I kind of like the letters. It does get long-winded, and it does get convoluted at times. But for me, even even though I guess I'm able to, it's able to seem more realistic to me because it's it's the back in the day and you're like, of course they wrote these really extravagantly long letters, right. you know, with extremely accurate quotations and it's sci-fi. So maybe he had a, you know, a recorder. <laughs> 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 but, I, I don't think he did Kyle. Yeah, probably not. Um, I took it at face value for me because it felt like at that, in that time, like maybe you would, maybe you would remember things um, in a different way because you didn't have recordings. Yeah. Like you don't have the same technology we do, which I think helps us, but also uh, we use different Makes parts of dumber. our... Yes, we use mm-hmm. different parts of our brain differently. Yeah. Um, and I really was absorbed into the novel, and I find that when the, the book is good, certain it, aspects that maybe don't quite make sense, I'm willing to just let go. And later if I think about it, I'm like, oh yeah, that maybe that was ridiculous that he remembers all these quotes so specifically. Yeah. But I was so <laughs> engrossed in it that I didn't really care. I, the, I think the only time it really popped out at me was when Frankenstein is relaying what the monster has said in this like long speech. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, wait a second, now we're at the, what the monster is saying and it's like 10 pages uh, long but, as well. But so Jen, just, if totally Frankenstein was talking to me, 
I might remember verbatim <laughs> everything he said. Everything I know I would. <laughs> That's true. I feel a, a lot of the horror novel or like my favorite horror books are H.P. Lovecraft, and he does the similar thing where it's never you're never getting the first hand experience of something. You're not never, but usually not. You're always getting someone telling someone else the story of it. And I feel like for a spooky story, that works really well for me. Mm-hmm. And I just recently watched the movie for this podcast, and I actually missed the um, the narrator's perspective. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, 1931 yeah. movie. Yeah. I hadn't seen it before, and I, I watched it for the podcast, and I felt like an outside view might have been helpful. Speaking of the 1931 movie, I wanted to talk briefly about some of the adaptations leading up to the 31 Universal Pictures movie and then the 31 Universal Pictures because it is so iconic and so many of our pop culture interpretations of the monster derive from that film. So according to Wikipedia, there have been at least 55 films featuring Frankenstein's monster. And that's just films. That doesn't account for stage plays or television or video games or books or comic books or anything like that. And the first known adaptation was a play in 1823. It was called Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein. And actually, Mary Shelley and her father, William Godwin, saw this performed. And even as far back contemporaneous with Shelley, we already see that it's widely divergent from the book. The play removed the framing device of the letters and made the monster a huge non-speaking brute. So by that very first adaptation, he already wasn't eloquent. He was just sort of this monstrous brute character. Then in... Oh, as far as you know, did Mary Shelley have anything to say about the play? I did not find any of her reactions in my research, unfortunately. Or if I did, I didn't put it in my notes. I think it's so interesting that the first adaptation went ahead and did away with the monster's eloquent speech because as someone who mostly absorbed this story through the cultural zeitgeist and the lens of this 1931 movie adaptation that's so popular, I was shocked when the monster started speaking perfect English when I actually read the book. Yeah. So yeah. it's very interesting. Oh, I, just, I was just going to say it, it is really interesting how quickly it changed from the book and like yeah. the, that play really is what all the iterations and the Frankenstein that we see in pop culture is that's where it's from less so than the than the book mm-hmm. and in nineteen o eight so again very far back, already people were conflating Frankenstein with Frankenstein's monster. I couldn't find a specific example of pop culture being the the turning point where they conflated the two. It sounds more like common usage changed, and then that was later reflected in pop culture. Because in 1908, one author said, it is strange to note how well-nigh universally the term Frankenstein is misused even by intelligent people as describing some hideous monster. So pretty quickly, the vernacular changed, and it sounds like pop culture changed with it. Well, it it was a sensation in the time, right? When it came out, it was hugely popular. The book, yeah, it was extremely popular. But even 100 years later, people are saying calling the monster Frankenstein as mm-hmm. opposed to the you right. know, genius Right, but it's doctor. also the title of the book, so I understand why True. you would yeah. associate Frankenstein with, with the, the monster. monster. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. And I conflated it growing up. I didn't know before I, before somebody told me that the conflation was wrong. And I did a lot of thinking about whether it actually is wrong. Like, the monster doesn't really have an identity except for the one attributed to him as being a creation of Dr. Frankenstein. And so sometimes I think of the monster as kind of an extension of Dr. Frankenstein. So I don't know. I had some debates with myself about whether or not the conflation is actually incorrect, even though technically it is. For sure. And one of the themes, and I guess you could call it a trope, is who is the real monster? Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a lot of the doctor is the monster type of interpretation. So I can totally see those being used interchangeably with the doctor and the monster. To get to the 1931 film, which you mentioned, this is probably the most well-known adaptation. It was by Universal Pictures starring Boris Karloff. And this is where I think a lot of our picture of Frankenstein's monster comes from. Like if I were to tell you picture Frankenstein right now, 
what would you think of? Green giant, and then with you know the little uh, the the, the shock plugs. Yeah, the yeah. bolts in his yeah. neck. Yeah, the bolts and the flat forehead. Yeah. And the, and the, the exactly sewn together. Yeah, sewn together. Mm-hmm. Yep, precisely. And that's all thanks to this movie and everything that <laughs> followed. Sort of followed that picture of the monster. Well, yeah, the 1931 movie, I was really interested to see how that influenced a lot of the tropes that we take for granted in the horror slash monster genre, like the mad scientist's laboratory. Because in the book, you know, Frankenstein creates this monster, but it's all kind of done, like, behind a curtain. Like, you don't really see exactly how it's done. You know that he is made of corpses, and you know that he studied, you know, philosophy of science and used electricity in some way, but it's not really, like, flipping the switch on the wall Yeah, kind yeah. of iconic well, I, visual trope. Oh, no, I just wanted to uh, really quickly, since we're talking about the book and the movie, for those who don't know... I think we should list some key differences between the two and what the movie changed. Mm-hmm. Oh, another one is Igor. No, yeah, no oh, Igor. <laughs> so there's no assistant. Dr. Frankenstein doesn't really have anyone helping him for a really long time. He, like, basically, you know, keeps freaking out about what he's done and falling ill for really long periods of time. He doesn't have this, like, <laughs> continuous mad scientist drive yeah. and, you know, hunchbacked assistant to help him. Well, he's, he's, right. he's ashamed. Who became a trope in his own yes. right. Yeah, the, the hunchbacked assistant, yep. that's yeah. true. I mean, also the yeah. monster in the book is very intelligent. We touched on this earlier. Mm-hmm. But yeah. um, he definitely, like, is able to formulate thoughts and it's... Smarter than me, I think. Yeah, he speaks better than me. He should have a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) He basically sits outside a stranger's house and, like, gets to know the family and learns to speak by watching and listening to them. And has real ideas about humanity and his place in the world and why people don't like him. Yeah. And why... It is wrong that Frankenstein created Created him. him. Yeah, it's it's pretty existential because it is this creature that's, like, it makes me think of, you know, the Rick and Morty line, you know, no one asks to be born. You know, Frankenstein didn't ask to mm-hmm. be born. And, you know, but he, he's a monster because he's a spoiler. If you haven't read the book, he's murdering people. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but you do sort of empathize with them because he was immediate. He was created and then immediately cast away by his creator right. because he was so hideous. Reading the book, I liked the monster more than I liked Frankenstein. Me too. And I think that's oh, on yeah. purpose. <laughs> And Frankenstein has that deep shame, and he's hiding away, and he's like, well, that monster left. Good thing. I won't think about that anymore. I'm sure everything's fine. (laughs) And then he just meets up with them later, and the monster doesn't know he's a monster until society starts reacting to him. So it's one of those nature versus nurture things. Is he just merely a misunderstood gentle creature, and then when society treats him as if he's evil, he becomes evil. Yeah. Right. And I think for Mary, too, a lot of it was the importance of having a loving family and like because she did start writing this a little bit after she'd been you know had run away from home with her father mad at her and like and she grew up without a mother i think there is some some idea of like your parents your creators are supposed to kind of care for you and if they don't terrible things will happen but then the movie took that and just created this monster that has a very low intelligence score. Yeah, yes, for D and D terms, <laughs> and no real purpose other than the scientist is a little right. crazy, and, yeah. and the scientist doesn't really wrestle with what he's done in the same way that in the book he really has to Victor face the does. consequences of like I. Yeah, he doesn't take to bed and then later have real bad consequences yeah. <laughs> to his life and family. No, his yeah. What did you guys think of the 1931 movie? I think that it's definitely classic. It It's one of those things where you're exposed to a lot of scenes without even having seen it before. And then when you see it, it's like, oh, so that's where that yeah. comes from. It, it also sort of dovetails with what you were saying, changes from the book. I would say some of the most iconic scenes aren't existent in the book whatsoever the it's alive moment there's no maniacal laughter and Mm -hmm. leaning over the table while he rises up and saying it's alive but of course everyone is so familiar with that scene and it's been parodied endlessly 
there's the scene with the monster and the little girl where the little girl is picking petals off a flower and tosses the flower into the stream and Frankenstein, not knowing any better, tosses the girl into the stream and she drowns. So the monster does also start out sort of not monstrous. Mm -hmm. He didn't mean to kill that little girl. And then this angry pitchfork-wielding, torch-wielding mob comes after him. Again, another very iconic scene that is not in the book whatsoever and is endlessly referenced by other pop culture. Yeah, and I think I feel like I've seen it, even though I haven't. So, (laughs) because I've seen so many scenes from it over time. Yeah. Oh, and total side note, if we were supposed to watch it for the podcast, I totally missed that memo. (laughs) Jen, no worries. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. But I do remember being scared of it as a kid. I was like, were we supposed to do that? No, I just watched it to try and have some context, because I feel like Kyle generally has a greater pop culture um I think it was science fiction. Yeah, like with totally with do. horror stuff definitely. Yeah. But that's so the only thing. I, I always feel like I'm scrambling behind. Um, yeah. and also it was just <laughs> to try to pick up on things. Also it was just something that I felt like I needed to watch for like references. Um but no Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't no, watch I haven't I haven't seen it since yeah. I was like four. <laughs> yeah, it's become such an essential part of the Zeitgeist and like so many things that came after it. Yeah. Came from that. You can trace I mean, you can make the argument to trace so many of our modern monster and science fiction tropes back to it. Yeah. And this movie was also really interesting because it was maybe one of the first examples of a cinematic universe. Yeah, the monster. Frankenstein was called part of the rogues gallery of universal monsters, which also included Dracula, Wolfman, the mummy, Mm -hmm. creature from the Black Lagoon, the Invisible Man. I, I think I actually watched all of these in childhood because my mom was a really big yeah, fan. Yeah, same. And, yeah, and they're actually talking about rebooting this rogues gallery of monsters. And they sort of they started tried. it with, to- yeah, Tom Cruise's The Mummy movie in 2017. I think that might have but, killed it. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of been per- it on too, perpetual yeah. hold. Yeah. <laughs> Tom Cruise, damn it. Yeah. You killed it. <laughs> oh, sorry for saying or swearing. No, it's okay. Tom Cruise, you killed it. You killed it, yeah. I I mean, I didn't see The Mummy. I was excited when I heard that that was maybe a thing that was coming out, because uh, like Meg, I saw the, all those monster movies as a kid and was like, oh, this could be kind of cool if they try and make some scary, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but they, you know, no, nothing's a nothing's a kind of fun horror movie. It's all got to be like this crazy action, you know. Yeah. Tom Cruise is a Navy SEAL or whatever, and he's just, it becomes a right. mummy or something. <laughs> I was just going to ask you guys if you wanted to uh, talk a little bit more about um, any other favorite adaptations or... I would say I have two favorite adaptations. The first is definitely Young, Young Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Oh, yes. Yeah, you took mine. So Young Frankenstein came out in 1974. It was directed by Mel Brooks and starred Gene Wilder as Frankenstein's grandson <laughs> and Peter Boyle as the I monster I believe it's, it's, it's Frankenstein. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Yes, Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, but I love this. It's hilarious. It's Gene Wilder at his best, probably. And it really shows a real affection for horror films and its roots, even though it's sending it up at the same time. And they insisted that it be in black and white, even though there was a little bit of pushback from the studio. But they really wanted that authentic feel. Yeah. And it's endlessly quotable, <laughs> like you just demonstrated. Um, and it's, yeah, I don't know. It's funny, too, because I feel like there are some callbacks to the book in that. There is a bride of Frankenstein in the book, and that's something. Or a that, potential. A potential, one, yeah. yeah, a potential one. Yeah. And it, you know, yeah. in Mel Brooks' movie, he does by the end of it have a, a healthy brain, the the creature. True. <laughs> so. Yeah, I always thought it was really interesting how Frankenstein in the book refused to create the bride of the monster, mm-hmm. a female version of the monster, because that's what the monster wants: is companionship, someone who understands him, and. He, like, hates himself for creating this monster in the first place. He didn't want to create another. The idea completely horrified him. And it also has a bit of a feminist message. Like, she wouldn't choose to be created. And so we can't create her, despite the fact that we created him in the first place. (laughs) The question of Frankenstein's mind was, what if she rejected the monster? What if she didn't want to be with him and he forced her to be? And so he didn't want that either. 
some pretty great, pretty yeah, good I know. stuff. I took it to a dark every place. Time, yeah. No, but every <laughs> time I really think about the themes that Mary Shelley brought up in Frankenstein, it blows my mind that she was 19. And yeah. she'd, just, lived, she'd lived a lot at She'd 19. lived a lot. And I hadn't lived as much mm-hmm. at 19, but I certainly yeah. wasn't thinking of these themes, and I wasn't capable of writing this book at 19. She, she had had and lost two children by the time she was 19. No, she lived a lot more than me then. You know. So, uh, um, but, but, it, but every, like, just, like, what she's posing and for her time, yeah, it just blows my mind when I think about, like, how she impacted literature and did yeah. all of this. I read one critique that said that a lot of people say, I can't believe she wrote this despite being so young, but this particular critic said, I think she wrote it because she is so young. She was at an age where she wasn't censoring herself mm-hmm. yet and still was in possession of all of her original ideas and kind of a new slate. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Definitely. Um, Clara, what are you, do you have any other uh, favorite Frankenstein adaptations? No. <laughs> I, um, young Frankenstein so, so my, wins. Uh, well, actually, I haven't seen Young Frankenstein, but that's wow. because I know, and I'm a Mel Brooks fan. Like, yeah. sick of fan. Um, I am horrible <laughs> with scary movies. And oh, as a kid, I wasn't allowed to scary. watch it because it was too. I, I probably would have had nightmares from it. Um, but I loved the book. I was so excited to actually read it for the first time, and I'm glad that we, you know, set this up so that we actually, I, yeah, I actually ended up reading Frankenstein. Yeah. Well, I think um, one of it's not a direct Frankenstein adaptation, but it's something we're going to do an episode about it later this month, and kind of you know as a continuation of this idea. It, and what Frankenstein's done. Jurassic Park is kind of a Frankenstein story. Mm. Oh, I like the out-of-the-boxness of that. The creating life yeah. from death and wh- bringing creatures back. Using yeah. the technology the of the time hubris. to do something even bigger than what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. In I mean, science. There, there are definitely some differences, but I feel like Jurassic Park, at least the first one, and we're going to watch some of the other movies too. I, did, I haven't seen the most recent. I listened to your guys' episode on it, though. And, <laughs> and then you decided not to see it. <laughs> well, I decided not to see it in theaters. <laughs> um, but but I think there there's a lot there, especially with this kind of... John Hammond isn't a mad scientist, um, and he's not an, an, an evil dude, but I don't know. I'm I'm excited to kind of dig into Jurassic Park as uh, as a kind of take on Frankenstein. I'm very excited for your Jurassic Park episode. I love Jurassic Park so much. (laughs) Yeah, that that first movie (laughs) is is so very good. I'm going to go out of the box a little bit with mine and go with Weird Science. Oh! Classic 1980s flick where... That's a hot Frankenstein. These guys... Yes. (laughs) (laughs) These guys harness the power of electricity to create a woman who did not exist before and bring her to life. It's a different... bit of a different theme, but I think it definitely owes its roots to Frankenstein. Oh, definitely. Or at least the 1931 whale movie. Yeah. Whale being the James, James whale, whale director, yeah, the director, not a whale. Not that there was a whale in it. It was confusing uh, yeah. <laughs> to anyone. The the famous blue whale. <laughs> thank, famous you for, thank you for clarifying, Jen. Frankenstein whale. Yes. <laughs> in case anyone was really confused. My other favorite adaptation, and I'm actually really excited that you guys asked us to guest when you did because everyone can see this recommendation that I'm going to mention when before it wasn't really possible. So this is the National Theater production of Frankenstein starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller. So it was a theater performance that they filmed and then it had a limited release in theaters. And I would say this is the most true adaptation of the book. It's very philosophical. It's very cerebral, thoughtful. Most of it is dialogue between Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster. He's definitely the eloquent monster. And Wait, who is Frankenstein? They, well, that makes you tell you. They, <laughs> they switch roles. That's another really oh, interesting part of this production. So this is coming back to theaters October 22nd and 29th of this year to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the novel. So one showing is Benedict Cumberbatch as the monster, 
And the other showing is Johnny Lee Miller as the monster. And it's also noteworthy that unsurprisingly, because Meg loves it so much, both of those men have played Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> they are both Sherlock Holmeses. <laughs> On yes. television shows that are very popular. <laughs> and they're both Frankensteins now. That's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty good. And monsters. And monsters, yeah. I mean, is Sherlock kind of a monster, though? Perhaps. He's a... BBC's Sherlock, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Cumberbatch is Sherlock. He's kind yeah, of a psychopath. <laughs> I have another one that is actually something you've covered on your podcast before, which is the terror. I can definitely link a lot of themes in the terror to Frankenstein. The whole beginning of reading Frankenstein where they're in the Arctic, it kept making me think of the terror because I read that book and absolutely loved it. I still haven't seen the adaptation, but I did re- read the book and it really stuck with me. So, yeah. Totally when, agree. When I was watching and reading The Terror, I was right after I'd read Frankenstein, and I kept on oh, waiting cool. for Frankenstein to show, show up. On a dog sled. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I have one. Um, Pygmalion and My Fair Lady. Oh, yes. I think yeah. that that is... And she, then she's all that after that. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's really important <laughs> to go all the way to Shirtle. <laughs> Linking to your prom episode. Um, <laughs> But I do think that that, in a sense, is its own Frankenstein um, story where you're creating, you know, you're taking, creating your own monster. Yeah. And um, what good does it actually do to make something? Yeah. Yeah. Without thinking about the And are you actually helping the person that you're elevating or creating? Or is it just a project for you? Yeah. For fun? To see if you can do it? Yeah. I mean. And how narcissistic are you that you fall in love with it? Yeah, that's true. Well, <laughs> which to give Victor Frankenstein credit, he certainly doesn't fall in love. He with didn't do that. He, he was not. not into the whole monster thing. He, he was grossed that. out. <laughs> yes, I think that's sure. our Frankenstein episode. Meg and Jen, thank you so much for coming on. This has been so much fun. Oh, thank you for having us. This has been awesome. Yeah, thank you. And um, can you let people know where on social media they can find you? Sure, you can find us at Indoorswoman, or you can find us at Indoorswoman.com. You can find me at Nerdified Jen on most social media platforms, and you can find Meg at Meg Writes Words. Also, you can find our podcast pretty much everywhere. Wherever you find podcasts. Everywhere? there. There we are. <laughs> Under the sofa cushions, uh-huh. Indoorswoman. Yes. <laughs> is that where you find your podcasts? That's where... Uh, <laughs> yes, no. I was like five cocktails in. <laughs> yeah, thank you. What have like you done shots to us? in the background? What you don't see is how many shots is it? <laughs> yeah, guys, thank you so much for coming on. This was really fun. This was so much fun. And uh, maybe we could do it again sometime. Definitely. We'd love to. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Kyle Willoughby. And I'm Claire White. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com, and we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at dsrapodcast. I can be found on Twitter at klex303, that's K-L-E-X-303. I can be found at Along With Claire, that's C-L-A-I-R-E. And you can find our producer James at James Foey Jr., that's James Foey, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. You can learn more about Frankenstein, Mount Tambora, and the... uh, The Indoors Women. And the Indoors Women on our Facebook page and our Twitter, where we're going to post links to some of the notes we use in our show, and to Megan Jen's lovely podcast. Our producer, who didn't do that much producing for this episode, he was actually just playing Bloodborne in the background, is James Foey. (laughs) Our logo was done by Patty Hyland, who was actually a huge, huge influence on Mary Wollstonecraft. Yeah, Patty Highland travels time, for those who are unaware. I knew it. Yeah, yeah, it's a big secret. Letting it out here. And our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, who is very terrified of Frankenstein. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. With Jurassic Park! Jurassic Park!